how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Letters of John, Part 1. Tucked away at the end of the New Testament are three little letters by the Apostle John, one quite long and two very short. And they're quite different from Paul's letters, which we've been looking at. Well, they're written by someone else. And the Holy Spirit so inspired the writers of Scripture that the Holy Spirit didn't override their temperament or their particular outlook, their character and personality. And that's beautiful. God can use our personalities. And uh, so they have a different feel about them. They're very warm, very personal. Uh, some have called them very fatherly letters. I call them very grandfatherly letters because by the time John wrote these, he was an old man. He was the only apostle to die of old age. All the others were killed, ex executed, assassinated or whatever. But John was allowed to live and indeed Jesus had hinted about this when Peter had been told by Jesus, you're going to die a, a horrible death, crucifixion actually. You'll be carried somewhere by others that you don't want to go. And Peter said, but what about John? And uh, Jesus said, that's none of your business, Peter. If I want him still to be around when I return, that's my business. And from then a rumor began that Jesus would start, come back before Jesus died, before John died. That's not what Jesus was saying, actually. And in John's Gospel, he corrects that wrong impression. But he did live to an old age. And he looked after Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course. And they moved to Ephesus, and that's where the, these letters were written. And later we're going to look at the book of Revelation. And that's uh, not unconnected with Ephesus either. Well, now, when we look at these letters, there are, again, these Bible scholars who say they're not written by the Apostle John. But when you compare these letters with John's Gospel, they have the same stamp on them, the same style, the same vocabulary. And many of the features are the same. But the thing that really ties these letters to John's Gospel, though in a sense they're not named, nevertheless, is the fact that all the way through there, there are these absolute contrasts. John is a very black and white person and is always presenting things in terms of absolute opposites. And we who live in an age of relativism find this very different. Relatives of Relativism means there's nothing either true or false. Everything's just an opinion. There's nothing right or wrong. There's no black and white. Everything's shades of grey. And we live in a society that's devoted to relativist thinking, whereas the Bible is very much in absolutes, black and whites. And John particularly sees things very clearly as a matter of life or death, a matter of light or darkness, truth or lies, love or hate righteousness or lawlessness, children of God or children of Satan, love of the Father or love of the world. And he just says these are totally incompatible. And there is no third position. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. And ultimately, of course, the biggest contrast is heaven or hell. And there's nowhere else. Everybody's heading for one or the other. 
Well, that tells me that it is John who's writing these letters and the gospel as well, that it's the same man. This is how he thinks. Now, who does he address his letters to? Well, he does tell us in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. He says, I'm writing to three groups of people. He says, I'm writing to little children, I'm writing to young men, and I'm writing to fathers. Now, he's not, in, in a sense, writing to different physical ages, but different spiritual ages. Young children are recent converts, those who have just been born again, little children who need to be given milk rather than meat to help them, little children who have experienced two things. They know forgiveness and they now know God as Father, and that's about the limit of their knowledge. And he's writing to them, little children, new converts, babes in Christ. He also wants to write to young men, those who've grown up a bit, and who've matured a bit. And he says three things about them. Young men, young men in Christ have begun to develop their strengths. They've grown a bit stronger. They're not weak like babies. They've also digested the Scripture. They know the Scriptures. They've been studying the Bible. And that has helped them to grow. And above all, they've had their first battles with Satan and have had victory over Satan. And when you get a victory over the devil, that helps you to grow. So these are young Christians who are growing strong in those three ways. And then he writes to much older Christ Christians. He calls them fathers. And he writes to these because their experience has both length and depth. Some people just have length of experience and not depth. But he says fathers, real fathers, real mature Christians have both length and depth of experience with God. So he's writing to three groups all at once. That's quite a, a, a big target to hit. Uh, we do notice that he puts them all into male form. And in fact, you may have noticed the whole New Testament is addressed to brothers, not brothers and sisters. Well, that's an important thing to notice for a number of reasons. It does cover brothers and sisters, but why is there this male emphasis? because there, there are now non-sexist versions of the Bible that put it as brothers and sisters all the way through. Same Bible says God is father, mother, and there's a whole lot of confusion coming in there. But I believe one main reason is this. The strength and character of the church can be seen in its men, and that men have the responsibility of leadership in the church as well as in the home and that their character is the all-important thing. Where a church's men are strong, the whole church will be. Where the men are weak, that church will be weak. And that's one reason why the last five years I've spent so much time in what we call our Men for God conferences. And the most letters of thanks I've had are from the ladies for what's happened to their men. Where the men are strong in the home and the church, the women and children will be strong too. But where the men are weak, that church will be weak. It's an important point. And brothers are very important. And uh, I'd be a wealthy man if I had a ten-pound note for every family in church where the wife is ahead of the husband spiritually. But it's healthy where the husband is ahead of the wife. And a husband can't be ahead 
unless he's ahead, if you know what I mean. So that's the male emphasis. It's not putting women down or children down. It's saying if the men are strong in the faith, the women and children will be as well. And that's a profound principle. Well, now, that's who he's writing to, so ask why is he writing, and we get a lot of answers because he gives us so many answers. And I've given you two outlines, two possible lists. One is a shorter one and one is a longer one, but you can put them together and make of them what you will. But, for example, uh, someone has said that he writes for four reasons, that these three groups of people may be satisfied, that their joy may be full, that they may be sinless and living blameless lives, that they may be safe from all the wiles of the devil, especially false teaching, which is the devil's particular approach to church life, and above all, that they may be sure. Christians need to be assured. There's a doctrine of assurance in these little letters that's terribly important. We don't want to be waking up every morning insecure but to be sure of who we are in Christ and in God. And so he writes that they may be sure. That's picking out four texts there. I've got uh, five here, very similar. He's writing to promote harmony among them, that they may have fellowship with one another, that they may really be one. Writing to promote harmony, to produce happiness, that their joy may be full, to protect holiness, that they may remain a holy people and not distracted from that, and to prevent heresy. I'm sure you're getting the message as we've gone through the epistles of Paul and now John that the biggest danger to the church is false teaching, and we have to be on constant guard against it. And finally, to provide hope. He wants them to be full of hope for the future, not depressed, but looking forward with eagerness to all that God's going to do. Well, you can put all those reasons together, but that's on his heart, this dear old man. He's writing about the year 90 AD, 60 years after he first heard Jesus say, follow me. And here's the old man, I can see him with a long beard, and he's saying, little children and young men and fathers. He's saying, I'm your grandfather <laughs> in the faith and I want you to be satisfied and sure of who you are, and I want you to be holy and in harmony and full of hope. That's why he's writing. So there's a very tender pastoral heart writing these letters. Well, now, let's try and sort of get a pattern out of the letter. It's not easy because... Um, there is no order in this letter. When you try and structure it, it's almost impossible to analyze. He sort of goes around in circles. His thinking is, as we say, cyclic rather than linear. And I'm a linear man. I like A, B, C, D. You know, I like to see the progress of an argument, and I like to analyze, and Paul is pretty good at that. He had a legal mind, and I like linear arguments. So I find myself a little lost when I come to a, a man who's, who thinks in circles and goes round and round the same themes and keeps returning to one and then starting off again. Now, why does he think in circles rather than lines? Well, he's a fisherman, for a start. He's not a lawyer like Paul. He's a fisherman. 
and fishermen will talk from one thing to another. He, he wasn't an educated man. He wasn't taught to think that way. That's a possible reason. Another possible reason is his age. Old men become garrulous and they talk round and round things. It's characteristic of age. But I think the real reason is this. This man is Jewish. And though he's writing in the Greek language, he's Jewish. And if you study Jewish wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, it is characteristic of Jewish... Have you listened to Jewish rabbis talk? Have you seen the film Fiddler on the Roof? They, they talk around things. On this hand and on the other hand and... One Jew asked me, do you know why all Jews have short necks? And I said, <laughs> you see, and, and there, there is this kind of, this whimsical wisdom, you know, on the one hand and on the other hand. Uh, um, it's Jewish wisdom to talk around subjects. The book of Proverbs, for example, just goes round and round a number of subjects. It touches on laziness and then on a nagging wife and then on something else and then on something else and then cursed be a brother who rises early in the morning and greets with a loud voice. And, and then it comes back to laziness and then it goes on to nagging women again. And Have you noticed it goes round in circles and you have to pull everything together from all over the place to find a sermon on laziness. Uh, the same thing is in the letter of James. You read the letter of James and he talks about the sins of the mouth and then he goes on to faith and works, then he comes back to the mouth. And it is characteristic of Jewish wisdom to go round circles and to have a number of themes that you keep popping up and interwoven. So you can't really structure it, but I've put it in a diagram of a kind of world with two hemispheres two halves of a world. And what he's saying is, I want you to live in this hemisphere and not drift into that hemisphere. I want you to stay up here with the Word of God and not go with the world. And that sort of little diagram helps me when I'm reading through the letters of John. Because the world above, the upper hemisphere, the northern hemisphere, is where the children of God are to live. And that's a world of life and love and light. Because the biggest influence in them is the Word of God. But if you drift over the equator, you go to the other hemisphere, that's where the children of the devil live. And that's a world of lawlessness, of lust, of lies because they're influenced by the world. And that's the choice that every Christian has each day, to live by the Word or to let the world shape their life. And that will be the character that will result. That will be the kind of atmosphere around the person as they live. If you love the world, you'll soon be living that kind of a life. If you love the Word, you'll be living this kind of a life. And once you've seen that little simple framework of his thinking, you realize that in fact there is some shape to the letter. It's a bit of a sandwich. Begins positive, then negative, and then positive. That's a nice sandwich. Twice as much positive as negative, and the negative squeeze between the positive. What we're to do, what we're not to do, and what we're to do. Or to expand it a little, in chapter 1 we begin with life, and then as we go into chapter 2, light. And then there's the negative section, 
which concentrates on the world's kind of life, lust, lies, and lawlessness. That's from chapter 215 to 3.10. Then he goes back to the positive and emphasizes love very strongly. He is the only person in the Bible to make the statement, God is love. And that's the point at which he makes it there. And then he finishes by talking about life again. Now, I wonder if you realize what a revolution it is to say God is love. No other religion in the world has ever said that, and indeed cannot. Not even Judaism can say that. Judaism can say God loves us, but that's a different statement. To say God is love means that God is more than one person. Because you can't be love by yourself. You understand that? Only because we know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can we say God is love. Because before there was anybody else around, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Father loved the Son, and Son loved the Spirit, and Spirit loved the Son, and Son loved the Father, and they all loved each other. God is love, which means God is more than one person. Whereas to Judaism, God is only one person. Therefore, he can't be love. Do you understand what an extraordinary statement it is to say God is love and yet to say there's only one God? You can only say God is love if you believe God is three in one. Otherwise, he can't be love. You could only say he loves us. But when there were no us to love, how could God be love unless he was three in one in perfect love? Somebody once asked me, why did God make us? I said, well, he had one son and he loved him so much that he wanted a bigger family. I said, I can't put it more simply than that. He wanted to share the love he already had with a larger circle. That's why he wanted to make many sons. That's how it all came about. Well, that's a kind of outline. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's move on quickly. I'm looking at my notes and then looking at that and I can't tie the two together. So I'm going to go back to my notes for a moment and then we'll come back to that. That's a little further ahead. I want to deal with the heresy, the false teaching that he was having to cope with right there in Ephesus. Um, you notice as he goes through the letter, he says, we and you and they. And it's the they part that I just want to talk about. I haven't got any notes up here for you. Basically, again, it's our old enemy, Greek philosophy, that separates the physical and the spiritual. And, you know, we, we've so imbibed this separated outlook, this disintegrated outlook on life. It is from the Greeks that we got the word sacred and secular. You'll never find that in the Bible. And yet even Christians say to me, I'm in a secular job. I say, you're in no such thing unless it's immoral or illegal. And I keep saying, there is nothing secular except sin. And you know, when I said that once in the north of England, a pop singer, a nationally known pop singer was converted through that word. There is nothing secular 
except sin. And from then on, he began to sing for the glory of God. He thought he was in a secular job, and part of which was making the jingles for commercial adverts on TV. He said, I'm now going to do that for the glory of God. Nothing secular except sin. But the Greeks separated everything into physical and spiritual, secular and sacred, temporal and eternal. They, they got it all separated out. And in particular, they separated the body and the soul. And we've suffered from that ever since. And then they took one further step and they said the physical is what is evil, the spiritual is what is good. The body is evil, the soul is good. And they gave people the impression, which we still have, that anything physical is somehow dirty or sinful. And we suffer from it in the church. And it's all wrong. But when you apply that to Jesus, you've got a problem. How could God be a man? That's impossible. God is eternal and man is in time. God is spiritual, man is physical. How could God be a man on earth? And of course, this struck at the very root of our Christian faith. And it took many different forms, one of which was that Jesus only appeared in the flesh, that his flesh wasn't real, it was just an apparition. It's a heresy called docetism, which means simply to put on a mask, to appear. And so one of the things John says in this letter is, if you hear someone say that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh, you know that's of the devil. And so, in fact, at a deeper level, they did what the New Age is doing right now. They separated the human Jesus from the divine Christ. And one heresy in the time of John, which again is taught today, I've heard it, I've read it, is that Jesus was a human being and at his baptism, at the age of 30, the Christ came upon him. And then at his death, the Christ went away again and Jesus died and was buried. So that Jesus and the Christ are actually two different things. Do, do you follow me? And that is why the New Age talks about Christ. They don't like using the name Jesus, but they say Christ. And they say every man can have the Christ come upon him. You see? Now, it's very subtle and it fools a lot of people. But you see, the, the physical human Jesus has now been separated from this spiritual Christ. That's heresy. Jesus Christ was one person, physical and spiritual, divine and human, of time and eternity. But the Greeks separate this out like this. One of their favorite statements was that God is outside time, that he's timeless. The Bible never says that. Bible says God is everlasting. And that's quite a different thing. Time is real to God. God is the God who was and who is and who is to come. Because time is in God. God isn't so much in time as time is in God. Whereas the Greeks separated God entirely from time. And you'd be amazed how many Christians think that when we go to heaven we'll go outside time. No, we go into everlasting life. Time extended infinitely. Time is real in God. and Time is real in the Bible. And therefore, history is his story. So all this heresy, John really had to fight hard. 
the separation of the human Jesus from the divine Christ. He says, if anybody says that Jesus hasn't come in the flesh, that's of Antichrist. That's not of Christ. So in their beliefs, this is what was happening. And so he had to say when the Christ came, he was a real human being. He says, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. And those are the three strongest physical senses, sight, hearing, and touch. And so he emphasizes that which we saw, that which we heard, that which we have touched with our own hands. And John had actually leaned again, leant on the Christ's bosom. He'd actually put his head on his breast. He said, I touched God. It's as real as that. The incarnation is fundamental. You see, I suppose what people think about Christ is the absolute fundamental question. Somebody's put it in a little poem. I'm not sure if I've got it right. You may be able to correct me. What do you think of Christ? That is the ultimate test. If you do not think rightly of him, you cannot be right in the rest. And that's it. Ultimately, everything boils down to what do you think of Jesus? Have you realized that he is totally divine, totally human, that in him the physical and the spiritual are totally integrated? The other world and this world have totally met. And the Greek idea that there is a separation between time and eternity, between spiritual and physical, has been absolutely smashed when the Word became flesh and lived among us and we beheld his glory. Well, John saw his glory. He says we saw his glory, and they certainly did. On the Mount of Transfiguration they saw that, but it was the human Jesus they saw glorified. It wasn't a spooky apparition. Well, of course, once you separate the physical from the spiritual, that not only affects your belief about Jesus, it affects your Christian behavior. And that Greek idea that salvation has nothing to do with what you do with your body, I tell you, that idea has got really hold of many people inside church. And there are people we know living quite immoral lives inside the church but claiming to be spiritual because what they do with their body has nothing to do with their soul. You see, that's what Greek thinking does. And you live in two different compartments. And your body lives in one compartment and your soul lives in another. And never the twain shall meet. And I think you know what I'm talking about. This is rife. And John had to write against this also. You see, people who think like this begin to think Sin doesn't matter in Christians. Got my ticket to heaven? Sin doesn't matter. Indeed, some go even further and say sin doesn't exist in Christians. There's a kind of perfectionism that says that as far as God is concerned, I'm sinless. See, one of the biggest, I think, mistakes people make when they come to Christ is to think that their future sins are forgiven when they come to Christ. No, only your past sins are forgiven when you come to Christ. You will need to go on getting forgiveness for later sins. And John has to say, and he's writing to Christians, remember, he says, if we go on confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to go on forgiving our sins, and the blood of Jesus will go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. 
It's not if I come to Christ, now all my sins are forgiven. I've got a blank check to sin now. It's all my past sins are now forgiven, and now I keep short accounts with God, and I've found out how to deal with sins, and I confess them, and He goes on forgiving, but only as I go on confessing. Got the picture? Now, again, this teaching is very much needed in the church today. We need John's letter. That kind of Greek thinking not only leads to lawlessness in the church and immorality, it leads to a spiritual elitism that thinks that Christians are above the normal rules of right and wrong, and we're not. Read Romans 2. Paul says, How dare you who condemn others yet do the same things yourself? Think that you will escape. God is absolutely fair. He doesn't overlook sin in unbelievers. He doesn't overlook it in believers. But he's waiting to forgive, get it cleaned up and dealt with. Well, that's the kind of background. In fact, it leads to a moral arrogance combined, uh, sorry, a mental arrogance combined with a moral decadence. And that's a very dangerous combination in the church. Well, now let's move on. You see, he wants Christians to be sure they are Christians, to have confidence. And so he says, the children of the Father reflect the Father's character. If God is light, his children embrace the light. They walk in it. If God is love, then his children will express love. And if God is life, then his children will enjoy life. So that begins to tell you something. How do you find out who's a child of the Father? Well, there's a family likeness. How do you know who belongs to God? Well, they embrace the light and they express love and they enjoy life because that's what God is like and his children are like him. But then he goes into much more detail and he gives four tests of real Christianity. And they are quite severe tests. And uh, he goes through them very carefully and in great detail. We haven't time to look at them in detail, but I want to give you the keys so that you can look into John and see what he's getting at. The first is the doctrinal test. And every Christian true Christian must pass this test. How do they think of Christ? And if they have that shaky understanding that's not quite sure if the human Jesus is the divine Christ or whether he's fully divine and human at the same time, they don't pass the test. A true Christian, first of all, must pass the doctrinal test. Otherwise, they're into heresy about Jesus. And there are plenty of people in church who think of Jesus as a great human being as a person who responded to God better than any other. But that's not the doctrinal test, that's heresy. He is both God and man, fully both, very God of very God, and very man of very man. That's the first test. If you don't believe that, then you don't pass the first test. The second test is the spiritual test. Hereby know we that we are sons of God because he has given us his spirit. And that is the witness of the Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. Without the Holy Spirit, 
you don't pass the second test because it's the Spirit who tells you you are the children of God and you know. Now, just let me put a word in here. Some people try and get assurance from Scripture. The Bible never does. I mean by that, here's a horrible word for you, by a syllogism from Scripture, by a deduction from Scripture. In simple terms, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you heard that kind of thing? Trying to prove to people that they're Christians by pointing them to a text in the Scripture. That is not the way of the New Testament. Assurance comes from the Spirit rather than the Scripture in the New Testament. You see? You can't try and prove that you're a Christian by quoting texts. It's the Spirit who tells you you're a Christian, not the Scripture. It's the spiritual test. Hereby know we that we're His children because He has given us His Spirit. And if you know you have the Holy Spirit, then you've passed the second test. If you haven't got the Spirit, then you're still in the possession of the devil. And you're liable to be possessed by his evil spirits. The third test is the moral test. If you are living right, then your conscience tells you you belong to the Father. Your conscience was given to you as part of your assurance. And with a clear conscience, you know if you're living right. And if you're living as God wants you to live, then in biblical terms, if you are practicing righteousness, if you find yourself keeping the laws of God, then that's the moral test that confirms you are his child. But if you're rebelling against his laws, if you're kicking against the way he wants you to live, then you don't pass the third test. You following me? You must read it all in detail in his letter. And there's a fourth test. It's the social test. If you love his other children, then you pass the test. Because you cannot say you love Christ and don't like Christians. Because Christ is in those other Christians. And if you love Christ, you will love the Christ in your brothers. If you hate your brothers, you certainly don't love your father. Because he loves the, the children. And I'll tell you a very practical case of this. It's one of the proofs that you love the Father, the God of Israel, when you find yourself with a love for the Jewish people. They're not lovable. <laughs> Frankly, at the human level, I'd get on better with Arabs than Jews. But it's incredible that the Spirit can give you a love for the Jewish people. Isn't that amazing? It's not a natural thing at all. The world hates them. It's a supernatural thing. But Jesus called them his brethren. And God still loves them in spite of all they've done to God. And he still loves them. And it'll be proof that you have the love of the Father in the, that you do. But particularly, he says, it's the love of the brethren that proves that the love of the Father is in you. Because the Father loves them. And if he has shed abroad his love in our hearts, so the Spirit giving to us, we're going to love them. And not all Christians are likable either. You know, at the natural. To dwell above with saints I love, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, that's another story. 
nevertheless, nevertheless, you find yourself loving people that you would not normally like because they're children of the Father and the love of the Father is in you. Now, there are four very good tests. Some of you are preachers. There's a great sermon for you. If you're preaching next Sunday morning, I've saved you the time. All right? Just take them through the four tests, the doctrinal, the spiritual, the moral, and the social. He says, pass those four tests. You can be absolutely sure you're living in the family of God and that you're a son or daughter of the Father. Now, once you have that assurance, that will give you tremendous confidence. In three dimensions, says John, it gives you confidence within yourself to set out each day knowing you're a child of God. You know, Christians are not wimps. Christians should not hang their heads. Christians shouldn't be, you know. We're upright men. The Bible talks about upright people. We can lift our heads and hold our heads high. I had to say that to a young boy who was, well, been born somewhat crippled and he was pushed around by everybody and teased by everybody, even his family, and now he was at work. And I said to him, What's your name? He said, Philip. I said, listen, Philip, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you love the Lord? He said, yes. I said, then from now on, you're Prince Philip. Look into the mirror every morning and say, good morning, Prince Philip. I said, you're a member of the royal family. Lift your head up. His head was down here. He lifted it up. He said, how did you know? I said, what do you mean, how did I know? How did I know what? He said, when I come into the factory in the morning, they all tease me and say, here comes Prince Philip. I said, but it's the truth. I said, when you go in tomorrow morning and they say, hello, Prince Philip, just say to yourself, they're right, you know. <laughs> and you know, it really helped that boy. He lifted his head up, made all the difference. When you're sure you're a child of the royal family of heaven, you're a prince, you are literally the royal family on earth. Lift your head up. It gives you confidence within yourself. It gives you confidence towards others. You speak more boldly to others. And above all, it gives you confidence with God. Because you're sure you're his son. You can say, Dad, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus for this. Confidence toward God. Well, isn't John beautiful? This dear spiritual grandfather. We're now going to move into another subject, and it's such a big one that I'm going to stop there, and we'll start the next um, study with uh, this very big subject of sin in believers. And John says some very strange things about this which seem to contradict one another at times, so we'll need to just unravel it a bit. I'm not going to promise to solve all the problems, but nevertheless, we just need to unravel it a bit. The one lesson we're going to learn is this, never take a verse by itself. You can prove anything from the Bible if you take a verse by itself. And too many people try to do that and quote a whole ream of verses at you. Don't think that's biblical teaching. Just notice if they take texts out of context, because a text out of context is a pretext. Sorry about that, but I didn't invent that saying, but it's a good one. Let me just give you one example. There's a verse in my Bible that says, There is no God. 
so I can prove atheism from the Bible. If I quote the context, the context says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> you see how easy? It's a silly example, but if you take one verse out of its context, you can prove anything you like. And I'm afraid that's been done with some of the verses in John's letter about sin in believers. And we need to see the picture whole. And we'll do that in the next study. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.